Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we will discuss powering California's economy. Governor Jerry Brown recently signed a law that, for the first time, regulates hydraulic fracturing or fracking in the state. Fracking involves injecting water, sand, and chemicals into underground rocks to release fossil fuels. It is often associated with natural gas, but for years, companies in California have been using it in oil wells. Recent advances in technology make it feasible to economically extract oil bubbles trapped in shale rock along the coast and in the Central Valley. As a result, California could be on the verge of an oil boom, and the new fracking law lays down the rules for how that could play out. At the same time, California is forging ahead with programs to reduce carbon pollution that is driving severe weather. The state has linked arms with Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia in an alliance to promote clean energy and combat climate disruption. Can California be a climate leader and increase its production of fossil fuels? Over the next hour, we'll talk about that in California's energy future, and include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three people deeply involved in the state's energy debate. Paul Diero is an energy lobbyist for the Western States Petroleum Association with KP Public Affairs. Ann Nothoff is California Advocacy Director at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And Fran Pavley is a state senator and author of the new fracking law. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. <clears throat> Senator Pavley, let's begin with you. Tell us what this new fracking law does for California. Well, a year ago at this time, we really didn't know much about fracking, frankly. And I had a couple of hearings. We didn't know where, which wells were being fracked, what chemicals were being used, where they stored the wastewater, um, the ability to notify uh, adjacent property owners wasn't available. So there was a lot of things we didn't know. And so the purpose of SB4 is to create the transparency and accountability so Californians would know a lot more about fracking. And we did it by also tying in our state water board and our air resources board who could do some of the hard work on the ground in monitoring groundwater, potential groundwater pollution as well as air pollution, methane, and other VOCs and other things. So uh, important work to be done because we hadn't, as a state, been regulating fracking other than the structural integrity of the well casing. Now, you have written some of the most important environment, environmental legislation in this country in the last 10 years. The tailpipe uh, emission rules that became a national uh, model, uh, California's climate law signed by Governor Schwarzenegger that put in place cap-and-trade, one of the only prices on carbon pollution in the world, and now this. And yet, environmentalists are mad at you, say that you caved and sold out to big oil. Your response? Well, both these people up here on the stage with me probably could uh, deny that as well as myself. Um, it was a problem that had to be solved. And without the transparency for Californians to figure out what was going on with fracking, um, that created uh, an area that I thought I should intersect myself with. You know, California, we drive 40 million cars 
in California. Unfortunately, uh, despite a lot of good work, and in fact, this year, Greg, um, we passed two bills that really are quite exciting. Uh, one bill was to uh, expend in the next 10 years $2 billion to incentivize the purchase of alternative fuel vehicles and engage in research and development for cleaner transportation fuels. Um, last week, I think the governor announced the eight-state pact with uh, other states working with California to put on the road 3.3 million EVs. I mean, that's amazing work. And so we're trying to balance that. Um, we're a state that needs to reduce our fuel consumption, move to alternative fuel vehicles. Um, we also need to understand that there's a transition period, and, and here we are faced with the Monterey Shale formation with all this oil, with the unknown facts as far as state agency regulations on is fracking, can it be safe or not? And what I'm trying to do is put a public face on this as far as uh, making sure the public has all the factual information. If they decide it's unsafe, you'll see the public change and do demand and do something else. And nothing in SB4 prevents local governments from adopting their own regulations from the governor looking at a moratorium or more stringent regulations or handcuffs the legislature from doing more. So this is the starting point as we're looking at this. Um, be assured that all of us are working very hard every day to look at mobile source emissions and reduce our climate carbon footprint right here in California. Paul Diero, as a representative of the energy industry, the oil and gas companies, what's your take on California's new fracking law? What will be its impact? Well, Greg, thank you for the question. Um, we have been fracking in California for 60 years, and we have done it safely. Uh, the industry believes in the technology. Uh, it could potentially be a game changer as it relates to economic opportunities in the Central Valley. Uh, from our standpoint, uh, we were we were losing the 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 battle uh, with with public opinion, and uh, it, it was in our best interest, Greg, to have a bill, to have regulations, to create a regulatory structure that's rational, based on science, and that makes sense. Uh, we want to be regulated. We believe in transparency, disclosure, notification. Um, we want to make sure the public is is uh, comfortable uh, with the process of what hydraulic fracturing actually is, uh, and and you know also we want to prove to the public uh, and and the uh, the local governments in California that we will test groundwater before hydraulically fracturing a, uh, a well and after hydraulically fracturing a well to prove to, to the regional water boards, to the state, and to the public that uh, that treatment uh, did not contaminate groundwater. And, and the only way it possibly could contaminate groundwater if that well fails Senator Pavley mentioned well construction standards of which we have the toughest in the nation. Finally, as a result of the passage of SB4, which we opposed and signed by the governor, um, we are committed to working through the process to make sure it actually works. We now have a structure in place uh, that the senator created uh, of which uh, we are willing partners. And Nothoff, Natural Resources Defense Council supported this law but pulled that support at the last minute because of some concessions to industry that some environmentalists say weakened the law. Is that correct? Well, um, yes, NRDC and uh, dozens of other groups have been working all year to get tough regular, uh, get a tough bill on the books. Now, what we'd all like is um, to put a moratorium in place on fracking in California until we get the uh, information that we need to know about the risks of fracking. Yes, California is uh, different, actually, than a lot of the states that have been impacted by fracking around the country in that we have been doing it here uh, for years. But, you know, you wouldn't know that if you looked uh, at our regulatory structure. 
they, our regulatory agencies can't tell us how much water each well uses. They can't tell us the impacts to the groundwater. They can't tell us how they're going to dispose of wastewater. Um, it was only recently that our uh, state coastal agencies found out that there's fracking offshore. So uh, even though we may have had, we have fracking going on right now that's endangering our communities, and we think we ought to take a time out. We got to do, have a moratorium. The governor has the uh, authority under his own executive authority to stop fracking now while we do the studies that Senator Pavley's talking about. Senator Pavley, New York State has a moratorium on fracking, and Governor Cuomo's dancing around that, maybe waiting, running out the clock a little bit there. Do you support a, a moratorium on fracking in California? I had uh, voted for a moratorium about a year ago in a prior bill. Uh, there were three moratorium bills that were introduced in the legislature this year. Um, none of them got through the assembly. There, you need 41 votes in the assembly out of 80 members. I think the bill that did the best and got to the floor got 24, 25 votes. Um, the legislature needs more information on this practice. And as before, we'll be providing that information. I myself actually had a moratorium in my own bill that um, was taken out. So here's the choice that Californians have to make. Fracking is already occurring. Paul has said that. We agree. Um, it's more complex and sophisticated than traditional oil drilling with use of chemicals and horizontal <coughs> drilling of a few miles and a process called acidization that was included in SB4 that wasn't part of the original discussion, the hydraulic fracking. Um, in some cases, like uh, my uh, county that I represent down in Ventura County, uh, most of the wells, I believe, are being acidized with 15% of the volume of the fluids um, being hydrofluoric or hydrochloric acid. Um, they want more information. Ventura County is a perfect example Oil industry is incredibly important to Ventura County. So is the agricultural interest industry, and they rely on groundwater basins and having uh, access to clean water for that. Another piece of the puzzle um, is, is almost half of the area being fracked in California now, in the Monterey Shale or offshore, is owned by under the jurisdiction of the federal government. A lot of people don't realize that. In Kern County, it's the Bureau of Land Management. And offshore, off three miles, it's the federal government. They should be a partner in this discussion because I know we're balancing our leadership on climate and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We're also trying to transition from a, a society that's so dependent on the automobile and moving moving towards transit or cleaner fuels or whatever. So incredibly important. And I have never objected and actually supported the concept of a moratorium until the regulations are in place. But you have to deal with reality. Is it if, if there is not the ability to have a moratorium, then you need to move forward as a first step with having these clear, transparent regulations for the public, putting in the Air Board and the Water Board, who are great at regulating our clean air and clean water standards, and have that information available because doing nothing is what exactly you'll get that we've had this past year, and that is no transparency or accountability and a very skeptical public. So uh, I think uh, pragmatically this made very much sense as a first step in this discussion. Paul Diero, probably safe to say you do not support a moratorium. I'd like to get your comments on the water tension, agriculture and energy. Uh, fracking is water intensive. There are concerns about water supply, competition for water. Uh, usually oil companies have more money than farmers could, could pay more for water. Um, so let's get at that water tension, both the quality and the, and the, the uh, quality of water around fracking. Um, to responses to that. One is uh, companies voluntarily disclose the water volumes and the water that comes up with the hydrocarbons uh, on a website called Frac Focus. 
doing research on the issue, in 2012, we fracked 568 wells. Total water volume for the 568 wells was 202 acre feet. When you compare that to how much agriculture uses in a year, 202 acre feet in one year versus 34 million acre feet in one year. So when you hear the debate that we are operators because of hydraulic fracturing are taking a piece of this zero-sum game of which we have for water, uh, which we also agree is very precious, it ought to be used wisely, we are not seeing the water wars between the ag community and farmers and, and oil operators. That's not to say where hydraulic fracturing is occurring back east in, in the Marsalis Shale, higher volumes of water are being used because the geology is completely different. Here, much smaller volumes are being used, so we're not seeing the, the fundamental butting of the heads of, of the ag community or any major water user industry in California and the operators. I will also add to that, when we bring up uh, oil out of the ground, uh, we bring up 90% water that has been down there for centuries. It's not potable water. However, we bring that water up. Uh, it's a closed system. What comes up is the hydrocarbons, water, and other substances. It goes into a tank. We separate out the hydrocarbons. We use those. We separate out the water. We, we recycle 75% of that water and reuse it for other oil treatment uh, enhancements like steam injection. So on the produced water recycling side, we use 75% of what we bring up. And on the hydraulic fracturing supply side, we use a minimal amount when you compare it to what is going on in other parts of this country on hydraulic fracturing treatments. And Nothoff, your comment on that, that it's not really that big a deal that fracking uses a tiny amount of water compared to agriculture in California. It's not a threat to price or supply. Well, of course, um Almost all water uses in California pale in significance the amount that agriculture uses. Agriculture uses 80, 85 percent of all developed water in the state. So, um, and in California, we have very little to spare. In fact, we don't have enough already. So whatever you're using it for has to be very carefully uh, issued. Um, one of the things about water, though, is that uh, in fracking, you've got to heat the water up to very high temperatures, and that is um, the oil industry is using um, fossil fuels to do that, which further increases the carbon footprint of producing uh, oil through fracking. And I think that that just shows how what one of the basic problems that we have and why we think we need a moratorium right now is because investing in uh, getting more fossil fuels out of the ground is just bass-ackward right now in terms of uh, California's commitment to combating global warming and a clean energy future. Uh, you mentioned that the governor, along with the governors of Washington, Oregon, and uh, Premier of British Columbia were here in San Francisco looking at the sparkling bay last week uh, and signed a climate pact and with a commitment to try and um, put a price on carbon along the entire West Coast. And um, California's pioneering work of putting a price on carbon and internalizing those costs is uh, really having ripple effects beyond our borders. But to, um, you know, but to spend the energy and infrastructure in investing in dirty fossil fuels is the wrong direction for California. If you're just joining us on the radio, we're talking about California's energy future and fracking for oil uh, at Climate One. Our guests are Fran Pavley, a California State Senator, and Not Hoff with the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Paul Diero, an energy lobbyist in Sacramento. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about that, whether California can have it both ways, uh, increase energy supply and also be a climate leader. Uh, Senator Pavley, uh, is there a, not a contradiction therein? And I'm going to hold that question for a minute, if I, if I may. And, um, and it relates to how I wanted to respond a little bit to the water issue, because it's germane to that trade-offs that we have okay. to make, right? Um, correct. So part of the challenges with the water, I chair the water committee for the 
State Senate in California is in some areas that have limited groundwater. Um, there have been not just anecdotes, but real-life stories of people who are hydraulic fracking in a, a groundwater basin using large volumes of water for that groundwater basin for fracking with the other neighboring property owners who are agricultural owners not realizing it. And all of a sudden they're having to drill for deeper wells and things like that. And that was a real-life story in, in Santa Barbara because they're not tied into the state water project and the supervisor there just didn't know. And in, in regards to water, because every drop is increasingly important, especially with climate and potential for more drought and Sierra snow uh, melt being less and earlier, um, part of the, um, one of the things we're focusing on an independent study, which is part of SB4, is looking at should we, could we be using more recycled water certainly not clean, potable water that could be used for agriculture or uh, personal use for uh, well water for families and urban users um, if uh, fracking is going to continue for any length of time because I'm very concerned about water supply and water impacts, and that relates, obviously, to your overall discussion and concern on climate change. I wanted to get back to my beginning comment as I weighed the trade-offs and why I was in the room on this discussion. Fracking was occurring without oversight, without transparency, without any regulations. This bill did nothing to promote fracking, accelerate fracking. It was already occurring. Now we'll know more about it. In the meantime, do we stop for one minute and going full speed forward as far as reducing our carbon footprint? Absolutely not. We have just this year um, come up with setting a ceiling, or excuse me, a floor for the 33% of all our energy use in California. We'll be moving up to 40 or even 50%. We're already thinking in my office, how can we assist in going past AB32? That's the 20, the reductions um, down to 1990 levels by 2020. How do we get to 2080? What are we going to do about our cars? Over 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions are from mobile sources. Until we grapple with that issue, a state with 40 million cars, we have a, a problem. Uh, I think they're all on the 405 and the 101 right now, but uh, it's, I'm from the L.A. area. So we're going full speed ahead in that direction. I'm, I'm working with the legislators trying to build coalitions um, you know, it's a challenge, 120 legislators from all over the state with different priorities and different interests, and collectively we have to have this discussion on the, the trade-offs and the importance of doing everything we can to not only maintain our leadership on this issue, but affect global change. Paul Diero, let's get you on that general direction, but first a baseline uh, do you accept that burning fossil fuels releases uh, heat-trapping gases that are destabilizing the climate? I, I am no scientist, Greg, so I, I, it's up to, I'll have the scientists answer that question. But, but as it relates... Is global warming real? I, it, it's not for me to answer that question. <laughs> Funny, I was I was sitting here a couple of weeks ago, uh, months ago, with the president of Shell Oil. I handed him that question. He said, "Oh, that's a softball, of course." But okay, um, uh, that was Marvin Odom. Uh, he doesn't have all the members that Wispa has. I guess he runs his own company. But okay, so uh, should California True. move toward a low carbon future and de-link carbon pollution from economic growth? Um, here's the fact. Uh, California has a consumer demand of 43 million gallons of gasoline a day. That's not going to go away anytime soon, and that's a consumer demand fact. Currently, we produce 38% of the oil needed to refine into gasoline in California. Where do we get the rest of it? We get 62% from uh, some from North Dakota now uh, via rail some from Alaska, although that's declining. Most of it comes from foreign countries in the Middle East. How does it get here? It gets here by tankers crossing millions of miles of ocean off the shores of California 
and into our refineries. That's how, that's how demand is met now. So I'd, I would ask the question, with, with the opportunity in the Monterey Shale, which is not in Monterey, it touches Monterey, but it goes from south of Kern County up to the north of San Joaquin County, the federal government, the federal energy department estimates there are 15 billion barrels of oil that, that are extractable from that, uh, that uh, shale rock. And that's almost half as much as the North Slope of Alaska. That's a huge amount of oil. It's two-thirds of the oil currently in shale rock formations in the country. Potentially. That's how big big it is. So my point is, uh, should we extract that oil in California where we have the strongest uh, uh, well and hydraulic fracturing uh, and well stimulation regulations that are on the books now, or would we rather continue to increase the importation of crude from Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, and other countries that have to travel off the shores of California? My suggestion is that it is far more preferable from an emission standpoint to get it here where it's highly regulated and not from countries where there are no environmental protections. Oddly enough, the revolution of hydraulic fracturing throughout the country has contributed significantly to unprecedented levels of greenhouse gas reductions because the development of natural gas. Natural gas has replaced coal in providing energy throughout this country. Thus, the greenhouse gases from, from coal have been significantly reduced. That's the irony of this. Depends on uh, whether how much methane is reduced in the production of that gas. Some people debate that, but gas is cleaner when burned. Depends how it comes out of the ground. On oil coming out of the ground in California, California is the only state that does not ex- uh, tax the extraction of oil and gas. Should there be a severance tax uh, if this goes forward in California? Bill Dio, I sort we'll- of enjoyed these questions. I oh, I, we got some for you too. Oh, sure. happy to answer um, the. The taxation of oil production in California is different than in other states. Currently, California taxes oil while it's in the ground in, through via property tax. So a county assessor goes out, knows the oil reserves are there, and then that land is assessed the valuation based on the oil of which it, the land is sitting on top of. Uh, other states don't do that. Uh, we have the highest corporate tax rate uh, of the uh, 20 oil-producing oil states in the nation. We have by far the high, highest sales tax rate. So the, the combination of all of those uh, leads us to believe, and, and we have the facts, California is one of the most highest tax states in the nation as it relates to oil extraction. So the combination of all of those taxes, and to answer your question, no, we should not place an oil severance tax or an extraction tax on the oil. It's already taxed via property tax, and it would be a huge disincentive uh, to not only explore what's what's within the Monterey Shale, which is in the Central Valley, uh, it would also impact oil production in Kern County, and we've seen numbers on that. Senator Pavley, severance tax, should California tax the extraction of oil and gas? I don't, I think it would have to be initiative. I don't think it would pass the legislature. There have been several bills in the legislature that haven't gone anywhere. It would require a two-thirds vote in both houses, a signature in the governor. So uh, that's something to discuss. But I wanted to talk about a little bit on that subject on how we can price fuels uh, to some extent. Um, One of the challenges that the oil companies face, and I hope they'll be a partner with us on relating to AB32 is the low carbon fuel standard. Uh, Explain re- what that is. That, that's, that's AB32 is California's climate law, and the low carbon fuel standard does what? So uh, we know we're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from mobile sources. That's our cars and things like that. Well, we can do it regulations by making more fuel efficient or cleaner vehicles, we can also do it somewhat through land use planning, smarter growth strategies, and more use of transit, correct? But a third component um, is requiring a reduction of 10% of the carbon intensity of the fuels. The fuels will have to be emit less carbon. 
there's a lot of businesses after the passage of AB 32 where we sent that market signal that have heavily invested in coming up with these cleaner new alternative fuels. That's about 16 to 18% of a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions envisioned in AB 32. And frankly, we're going to need the refineries and some of your members to join us in making this happen. I know um, the private sector, when they set their mind to accomplish something, just like the automobiles 10 years ago, right, they all sued to stop uh, uh, my law that required the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from the tailpipe of automobiles. Ten years later, they're selling all those cars and making a profit. And I'm hoping um, WISPA and all my friends <laughs> will uh, join us in implementing the low-carbon fuel standard. If not, we're going to have some real problems in California doing its fair share to reduce our, our carbon footprint. And so we'll need them at the table for this discussion. And the other part of that sort of ongoing story, is under AB 32, we've had stationary sources, the major emitters, have to now purchase allowances. That means we're putting a price on carbon. The major emitters in California have to purchase allowances monetarily to pollute. allowances to pollute, right? And it'll increase over time, and so it sort of forces them, if you will, to become more energy efficient, more innovative, come up with less carbon-intense practices. Well, starting in 2016, I believe, um, uh, oil mobile sources, comes under the cap. oil yeah. will be under the cap. That'll put a price on oil, getting back to the extraction tax comparison, put a price on oil. Um, for emissions, they will have to purchase allowances. They will have to reduce their carbon intensity or engage in more energy-efficient practices. There's several options here in order to make, uh, meet that challenge. Um, so I know um, let's, let's get in Sacramento, we're going to have a lot of discussions in the next few years from fracking to the low-carbon yes. fuel standard <clears throat> to fuels under the cap. And um, we're going to have Paul to Diero, work together me, on these. Let me jump in here, right? Senator, and ask Paul Diero, uh, this low-carbon fuel standard, this 10% reduction in carbon intensity for transportation fuels, uh, the petroleum companies have sued in court a couple times, lost. You think it's bound for the Supreme Court. Tell us about what the end game there. Well, it, it, the, the suit was brought by out-of-state uh, uh, manufacturers of fuel um, and believe that uh, it's a commerce clause issue. And, and I, it, there is uncertainty as it relates to the court case. It may go to the Supreme Court, uh, as I think the issue perhaps is ripe for that. But getting back to the, the theory behind the low-carbon fuel standard is that a regulator uh, has a scorecard, and it looks at how uh, that fuel is is created and manufactured. So, if you're using um, um, corn ethanol or, or sugarcane from Brazil, uh, your score is uh, is much higher. Our only fear is one is two things. Uh, one is that is it will drive the cost to consumers uh, at the gas pump. Uh, by a significant amount. And number two, the supply to create the high score on the scorecard of corn and sugarcane from Brazil and other materials simply is not there to meet the standard in 2015, which will produce uh, fuel uh, um, uh, production shortages. Uh, so we, you know, the car reducing the carbon intensity of fuel, is that a good thing? Per perhaps are there better ways to do it, incentivize it, create some market me mechanisms? We think so. We believe the current structure is extremely convoluted, but uh, willing to work uh, in a shared goal at the end. And, Nodhoff, let's get you in on this in terms of uh, the reality is uh, biofuels that a lot of environmentalists were talking about a few years ago haven't materialized. Some of the companies that are making biofuels are making oil for makeup and food instead because they can make it at, at lower volumes, higher margins. It hasn't materialized the way some of the cheerleaders said a few years ago. Well, we're seeing on the track that California's on now that um, and investments and new folks coming in and in, um, 
building up these companies, we're seeing that we're going to meet the standards of the low carbon fuel standard that it's that as it's currently drafted. Um, you mentioned the, about the oil extraction. Of course, we, there's been a couple of extraction fee. Of course, there's been a couple of bills that haven't made it. And then there was Prop 87 a few years ago, which uh, failed at the ballot box. And it was the most expensive uh, initiative ever in California state history. I think it was $150 million on both sides. So it is a tough uh, road to hoe to uh, battle the oil industry on that oil extraction fee proposal. We certainly think it makes sense. Um, Tom Steyer could do it, but okay. <laughs> the uh, and as so we think we're on track. I mean, I've met with um, several entrepreneurs that moved to California from Oregon because specifically because of the low carbon fuel standard because this is the place they want to do business. And um, looking at the carbon intensity is really key to all of this. And it's another reason why. Fracking for the relatively dirty, tight oil that is thought to lie in California, I don't think it's going to make, it's not going to pan out when you put it through a carbon intensity analysis. Um, the oil that's thought to be there is, in fact, some of the dirtier oil. I think in, in the existing fields, they have a carbon score that's higher than a lot of um, other oil fields. So I think that that's going to be a real problem in terms of meeting that, and I think it's another reason why we ought to be looking at cleaner sources of fuel. Uh, Let's pull the camera back a minute and, and talk about cleaner fuels and whether that's a cl- job creator that's good for the state, Paul Diero, or oftentimes incumbent energy providers say that that will hurt the economy, hurt job creation, et cetera. But California seems to be doing fairly well compared to some of the other states. So, so far, where's the evidence for the case that California's climate direction has hurt the economy? Well, I, I think you have a number of things uh, of which are evolving, and that is the implementation via the cap-and-trade program of AB32. You have the low-carbon fuel standard, um, and then you have uh, certainly the, the fracking issue uh, as well. I think when you mandate... Um, conditions on, on, on something like fuel, you have uh, major refineries in California, and it's specifically with a low-carbon fuel standard. If, if you mandate what fuel uh, that comes into the state as it relates to the carbon intensity, uh, I think you are going to be putting these refineries in a very difficult position because, one, I don't think the supply is there uh, that meets the scorecard. And, two, you're essentially providing an incentive for California refineries to sell their their uh, their fuel elsewhere because it doesn't meet the California standard. So that's and, – and, Greg, this is evolving. Is this happening now? No. Will this happen within the next decade? It depends on how these programs are rolled out. Is that a scare tactic, Senator Pavley? Well, you know, um, I've been in the legislature long enough, the last 12 years, engaged in climate, and uh, every time we're recommending or we put in regulations, people say we can't meet it. There's no way. It's impossible. But I have yet to see it be accomplished. And why has it been successful? Because uh, once we've sent that signal to the market and we keep our regulations in place or our cap on emissions, it's amazing what the innovation can do. Now, yes, it requires adequate time and adequate resources, but whether it's from clean cars or clean appliances or the cement factory is looking for less carbon intensity, they can do this. So just looking at, looking at the low-carbon fuel standard um, the scoping plan, well, AB 32 was signed in 2006. The scoping plan adopted maybe 2009, eight or nine. Um, they have to comply with the 10% reduction in the carbon intensity of fuels by 2020, I believe. So if you take that 10% and do a few percent a year, because it's a transitional kind of formula that is they can do it by looking at, yes, less carbon-intense fuels and uh, just speaking to people with clean energy, T. Boone Pickens Company. They're really taking off in some interesting directions on uh, less carbon-intense fuels that they want to step in and fill that, um, fill that uh, void. 
I think it's possible. And the other thing that can be done under the low-carbon fuel standard, let's say there's some problems because of corn ethyl. I'm with you on this. I don't appreciate using food stock, cellulosic, absolutely. Um, but uh, you can also reduce your energy consumption as part of the credits in reducing your carbon intensity in your refineries and things. So there's some flexibility in how you meet those standards. And um, I think the oil companies have some of the best engineers on the planet. I think they can do this. Let's talk briefly about 2014. It's an election year. Uh, what, do we, what do you expect are the most important energy issues and not Hoff in California 2014? Well, first off, I think uh, what California does matters. You know, Senator Pavley talked about the clean car bill that, um, that President Obama took national uh, last year and so that we have clean, you know, higher mileage standards nationally than anyone thought we'd ever have um, 10 years ago. That's another, like, we can't do it. But guess what? 10 years later, they did. And uh, earlier today, there were hundreds of people just down the street here uh, testifying before the U.S. EPA about President Obama's climate plan, which uh, builds on California's clean power plant rule. And um, now there's a proposal to take that nationally. And those two acts alone, cleaner cars and cleaner power plants, are going to be responsible for most of the U.S. Uh, compliance with our national carbon reduction goals. So really what California does matters. And um, at being a first actor has a lot of advantages both in the market and also has some challenges in the market. So um, next year, I think that uh, we're going to, you know, Governor Brown has really embraced climate as uh, a huge challenge for him, for himself and for the state. And it's great to see him now reaching beyond California's borders. Uh, he spent the last, the first couple of years of his administration getting uh, the California budget in order, and now he is clearly uh, tackling some of the big policy issues, and climate's the top one of, among that. And I, it's, I see that he has just been appointed to President Obama's climate task force, so he'll be working with other governors and mayors around the country on uh, developing policies that we can take nationally. So I think that there will be a focus on uh, taking California's lessons beyond our borders. And Nodhoff is California Advocacy Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Paul Diero, uh, oil demand is flat uh, because of conservation and some of the things that Ann just mentioned. What do you see as the main energy story of 2014? Uh, I, I believe uh, there are many. And to Ann's point, uh, I think the governor is, is a, uh, a, cr- a credible leader on, on all of these issues. Uh, um, along with climate, he is uh, he is not, uh, and in fact, he's he's in, engaged in the fracking debate. Um, he, he is not uh, does not have a knee jerk reaction to it, and and uh, I don't believe he supports a moratorium. Uh, his approach is measured, uh, and that's his administration ultimately will be crafting the regulations of Senator Pavley's bill, and it's, it's a tall task, and, 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 and we have full confidence in, in something coming out very rational. I think we will see lots of bills uh, and moratorium bills on fracking again. This year we had 11. Next year we'll probably have 15. Uh, it'll be a major issue within the legislature, um, but uh, I, I think we have our road and our path created uh, by, by the senator's bill, and we're committed to, committed to working through that process. Senator Pavley, briefly, then we're going to go to audience questions. 2014? Uh, a couple of things that I'd like to work on, chairing the Water Committee. Um, do you know 20% of all the energy we use in California is moving, treating, and heating water? I think it's incredibly important to think about our water policy in a changing climate world. So if we have to be less dependent on the snowpack, and I don't care if you're from the Bay Area or L.A., we're dependent on that Sierra snowpack, how can we become more regionally self-sustainable? It's a critical issue. It faces not only water, but it 
also energy. The other thing that's really important now as we're seeing is the expansion in R&D of battery storage, whether it's for solar and renewables. That's taking off. I mean, it's been an amazing success story here in California on something that 10 years ago we didn't think we could get 10% of our energy from renewables. We're now about 20%. We see 30%, and we'll get to 40 or 50 eventually. And the amount of new businesses in California and the amount of people and jobs in solar and wind and renewables are an incredible success story. Why? Because we sent that market signal, and the businesses have stepped up. We had an expert here from the Brookings Institution recently who said they did a study of the, uh, the brown energy economy and the green energy economy. They found, Brookings, that the green energy economy was a lot, lot uh, more export-oriented, had more jobs, et cetera. And we may do some things on that in the future. We're talking about fracking and California energy at Climate One. Our guests are Senator, State Senator Fran Pavley and Nothoff with the California Advocacy Director of NRDC and Paul Diero, an energy lobbyist. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. I have a question for uh, Mr. Diero. Um, SB4 will result in uh, mandatory reporting of water used in fracking, and right now the industry has been voluntarily reporting that. Would the industry object to revealing the amount and source of freshwater inputs into the whole oil and gas process, not just for fracking? So not just what you bring up from the ground, not what you inject in that short period of fracking, but all the fresh water you use and where you get it from. SB4 is the new uh, law on fracking in California. Paul Diero. Um, happy to answer the question. Um, I don't think we would be opposed to it. Uh, I cannot speak for the association that I represent on that question, which is the Western States Petroleum Association. Um, but I, I, I do think it is in our best interest to provide as much transparency on water volume usage as, as possible, and I'm confident uh, that we will, we, we will do that. Thank you for that question. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, Ken Jones from 350 Marin. Um, Mark Jacobson, who is just down the way, uh, the road here at Stanford University, has come up with a plan for California to be 100% renewable by 2050 and 80% renewable by uh, 2030. And it's very detailed with wind and solar primarily. And I'm just wondering to what degree the legislature has listened to him and to what degree that's kept from happening by the money of the oil industry. Senator Pavley, I think that's talking about electricity. Sometimes gets conflated with transportation fuels. Right. Uh, But your comment on, on plans for raising the bar. And um, that was one of the things that happened this year is we looked at net metering and other kinds of incentives for people to put solar on. I think it's exploding, and it's been a very successful industry. I want to share with you, uh, in California, this is not a partisan issue. We've had um, half a dozen Republicans on the floor of each house supporting increasing in renewables, why it's creating jobs in their in their district. So it's the battery storage and other things. We have a public utilities commission that meets right here in San Francisco. They're the ones in charge of implementing most of the renewable. And we also work collaboratively with the Energy Commission. And our Air Resources Board is the umbrella agency over the implementation of AB32. So we're a full speed ahead when it comes to the renewables. And some of the solar companies like Solar One, who's now doing the upfront financing, uh, which was the obstacle and impediment for average people putting solar on their roof. What I'd like to see in California is the day where you have solar on your roofs and you have your uh, plug-in electric vehicle in your car and you're off the grid. So, unfortunately, not going to the oil companies or paying your utility bills. So, And I think we, just to add on to that <laughs> a little bit, um, Senator Pavley talked about what's the next step in California's climate law, and we are on target to meet our uh, carbon emission reductions by 2020. So now we need to figure out how do we meet the next interim targets that the governor committed to last week in 2030 and then again in 2050. And I think that a very big piece of that will be getting electricity off the grid so that, you know, you had earlier, you had in your clip, you had Danny Kennedy from Sungevity, and you had, uh, there's all sorts of action in uh, California to help us figure out how to get to that. Thank you. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Rose Brad. I'm with the 
for biological I, diversity. Could you start, please start again? Thanks. Um, hi, my name is Rose Brath. I'm with the Center for Biological Diversity, and we're part of a burgeoning statewide coalition, Californians Against Fracking, more than 150 organizations united to ban fracking in California. And I had a question um, for Mr. Diero. Um, it was the Sacramento Bee just reported, I believe it was yesterday, that um, as SB4 sat on the floor um, for votes and had been amended with your amendments to weaken some of the protections um, that exist under current environmental laws, um, your association took a few key lawmakers out for a $13,000 dinner um, at a restaurant in, Sa- in Sacramento. And I know you're not a scientist from your previous remarks, but and you're probably not a chef, but I'm wondering if you could share what was on the menu and um, what was discussed at that at that dinner? Thank you. Well, I can tell you that uh, your reference to the last set of amendments, which had been a topic uh, amongst uh, many people, did not come from us. Um, so uh, the the amendments were not from from our industry. Dinners in Sacramento. We've had that dinner for uh, three years now, and. Uh, you know that it's it was a a dinner, not a fundraiser. Uh, they were guests, uh, and of which we policy is was was not uh, spoken. So it was it was a gathering, a legal a legal gathering. Pretty good wine. Okay, let's have a next uh, question. My name is Donna DiGiuseppe Matkovich. I'm a mother of three. My question is, as a practical matter, fracking involves infusing chemicals into the groundwater. How do we prevent in our agricultural state our agriculture being infected with the acids that are infused into the ground for the basic fracking process? How do we keep our agricultural pure from that process? And is that being looked at in terms of current research scientific research, and is that being considered in whether we need a moratorium or not? Have we looked at that basic scientific element of whether our food source is being infected by the chemicals that we know are being inserted into the process? Thank you. I'm happy to go ahead, Senator. Senator I can start. We can go down, down the row. And the reason I got involved in the fracking discussion, frankly, was chairing the water committee and the concern about potential contamination of our groundwater supply, which affects, obviously, farmers, agricultural growers, and urban urban consumers and urban um, users. And so uh, one of the goals was to make sure now, with a more regulatory and transparent approach, that the state water board will be conducting testing before and after fracking, and then an ongoing measurement of our groundwater supply. I don't think the public's going to stand for our groundwater supply being um, contaminated. So we are going to know which chemicals to test for. And ideally, and I've talked to a few oil company uh, folks, you know, looking for less toxic chemicals. That would certainly be a step in the right direction. I mean, if you're going to allow fracking it's got to be done safe where we're not contaminating our air and water. It's not a trade-off in my um, determination. And so um, groundwater supply and how it affects food and public health, let me assure you, starting January 1st, the list of chemicals used in any fracking operation in the state of California will be listed on a website. You will know what they are. We also have our Department of Toxic Substance Control engaged now with monitoring fracking um, Let's get Paul Diero quickly on yeah. that, and we'll get to our next question. And it's Paul. really just sort of an illustration of what hydraulic fracturing is. In California, groundwater and aquifers are less than 500 feet from the surface. Uh, the well goes down a mile and a half to two miles. Um, so the, there is non-permeable rock between the fractures, which are the size of the lead in a pencil, and groundwater, which is 500 feet from the surface. The only way in which that groundwater can contaminate, the, the hydraulic fracturing can contaminate that groundwater if, if that well fails as it travels through the groundwater, which is why we have the strictest, toughest well construction standards in California. 
and SB4 will increase those standards to ensure the groundwater is not contaminated. That's the only way in which groundwater can be contaminated. So, so the fractures occur so far down, um, it, it will it will never go up to the groundwater unless the well breaks. And out off quickly, then I would just say that we can't guarantee right now, and that's why we think we ought to take a, a break and study this. Of course, it's this vast expansion of proposed fracking that is also of great concern, and it's not just um, agriculture we're concerned about. It's drinking water and um, how do we dispose of the wastewater. There were some uh, wastewater uh, pools in Colorado when the the floods came. A lot of that produced water, fracked water, then was spilled into streams because of some unanticipated uh, floods in Boulder. Let's have our next question. And they're voting on that today. There's three uh, fracking bans on the ballot in Colorado today. Let's have our next question. Um, the question I was going to ask was actually already asked by Ken regarding um, the Mark Jacobson study and the research on renewables, which provides a blueprint for California for all purposes, not only electricity. Um, so, I, so I'd like to ask then about the the water testing. Um, will that be at regular intervals? Because from what I have uh, done a lot of research, including from industry literature and people formerly in the industry, that all wells made of cement inevitably fail. Sometimes the well casings and well bores fail immediately, sometimes in five years, sometimes in 10 years. So what kind of testing are we talking about, and will it actually be independent as there is a lot of instances, say, with the EPA and in Pennsylvania and Texas and Wyoming, et cetera, of studies that are cut off, studies that are not really done correctly, and thank goodness for whistleblowers bringing this information forward so the public can be aware that when we're told things are tested, it may not necessarily be reputable. Thank you. We'd like to tackle that. The frequency, quickly, Senator Pavley, frequency of water testing? At the request of any neighbors surrounding a well, and you'll notice know ahead of time which wells are going to be fracked, you can request that the your well or the groundwater basin can be tested before fracking and after fracking. But one thing we added to SB4, which will really strengthen your this concern. This is the new fracking law. Is the new fracking law. Uh, is that the state water board will have now regional water testing, not just before and after fracking, but long-term in relation to possible contamination from the storage of the waste fluids. And um, uh, no, uh, it won't be the oil companies doing it. It'll be monitored very carefully, either through consultants or the regional water boards or the state water board. So a lot more transparency on that. We'll know a lot more about water in California. Let's have our next audience question in Climate One. Uh, I was wondering if I'd just make a very brief rhetorical comment followed by a brief one-part question. Sure. Okay. So I'm just a concerned taxpayer and engaged citizen. And um, I I wonder, in hindsight, if residents in West Oakland and the Marina District had wished that civil engineers knew a little bit more about liquefaction zones before our homes went up in those neighborhoods. So my question is, to be fair, I do think it's admirable that the oil industry is disclosing their use of water. And, you know, a lot of my friends are engineers, and so I know they do work with scientists. Um, And I think it's admirable that the farm industry stopped giving pens to doctors. But I wonder if the Professional Golfers Association discloses the amount of water they use on nice golf courses. It's often, uh, thank you, it's it's been, I've heard before that, and not Hoff, that a, a, a well fracked doesn't use, a fracked well doesn't use as much water as a golf course. <laughs> well, there's 50,000 active oil wells in California, I think. We've got an awful lot of golf courses. I'm not sure uh, we have that much. I'll have to ask my husband or son. They're the golfers in the family. But um, I think that... Uh, golf courses are pretty toxic, all the, all the chemicals that are put on there and everything else. Yeah, I, I'm not there. sure that I'm... Uh, comforted by the fact that an oil well is like a golf course because they both have uh, <laughs> use a lot of water and it's uh, dirtier when it's uh, they're done with it. Let's have our next question. Uh, we got a few minutes left. We'll get one or two more in. Welcome. Hi, um, my name is Damian Luzo. I'm uh, just a concerned citizen, I guess. Also a, a fracking activist. So um, my question is for. You, um, I was wondering, uh, the statistics you were naming off earlier, they were describing a lot of the traditional vertical wells statistics and everything, but 
when we're talking about deep horizontal drilling or directional drilling, well pads, et cetera, um, we're talking about a lot more water than the numbers you were citing and a lot more um, non-recoverable water in terms of somewhere around 90% of it that is not able to um, be reintroduced into the water cycle. This is permanently removed, and even the best recycling processes, it's too expensive for you guys to actually go through and still profit. And I'm just wondering, um, how are you still going to address that and also the 5% well failures on immediate fracking? Okay. Uh, the, Paul Diero, that's who you asked the question. I was going to say, did you want to identify the yes. you uh, yes, for our yeah, listening right, audience? Yeah. Well, uh, let's have Paul. We'll get that uh, quickly, Paul. Yeah. Um, <laughs> happy to respond. In California, the geology, as I had mentioned, is much different. The monitor, or the uh, Bakken Shale rock formation in North Dakota is like a pancake. It's very flat. So you can drill horizontal and, and have uh, a, a, a great impact on the ability to Extract oil and and do uh, hydraulically and break up the uh, the rock formation. Uh, in California, the Monterey Shale is much different. It's like a roller coaster. It, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. So horizontal drilling in California, we have not found uh, to work uh, as it relates to the Monterey Shale. So the next question is the Monterey Shale. There is oil. How do you extract it? Uh, well, you would need more vertical wells, uh, which is a much larger footprint than one well, which goes horizontal uh, a mile. Um, and currently, that simply is not economical to do multiple wells. It's, it's very expensive to drill a well in California. So uh, drilling in the Monterey Shale is unlike drilling in the Eagle Ford Shale in Texas or the Bakken Shale in North Dakota. It's an unknown, so the, vert, the horizontal wells uh, haven't been proven yet. Last question. Yes, hi. My name is Bill Marlowe, and we have 60 years, according to you, of, of uh, fracking in California. Uh, can you give me some idea of how often we've had significant damage occur and what's been the worst-case uh, situation where we had damage as a real result of fracking? Um, Audio. Paul. Happy to answer that one as well. Uh, 60 years of hydraulically fracturing in California has uh, has not had one incident of any groundwater contamination or any environmental harm uh, or damaged, um, and you know, that's 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 just the fact. There have been no well failures uh, related to hydraulic fracturing in California. In fact, well failures are rare, uh, and if in fact it does happen, our regulator knows immediately. Um, but has the regulator really been watching for that? I mean, have they been looking for measuring fracking or kind of? Well, hydraulic fracturing is a well stimulation treatment. It's one of many. Once the well is drilled, we, we use many uh, treatments to, to enhance oil recovery. Hydraulic fracturing is one of them. Um, the regulator knows uh, and permits the, will, the well that is, that is drilled um, and, and we report in our well history uh, reports what treatments we use. So the regulator does, in fact, know. I, I think and not off. Just um, I think the new technology and the new scale that's being proposed in California are really things we haven't confronted yet. And um, the combination of the new technology and the huge scale, I think it is fair to say that this is not your father's fracking. This is a, a new day. I want to end it by asking each of you what you are doing to manage your own carbon footprint, either your car, your house, et cetera. Uh, Let's start with Ann Nodhoff. What do you do uh, to manage your carbon footprint? I get out of the car more, uh, ride my bike more, walk more. Uh, I don't turn on the heat when I I, uh, open the windows. What's the next action you will take? The next action I will take is... uh, I'm not going to get a car when my uh, car expires. I'm going to have another alternative way, and I'm going to um, move closer to transportation. Paul Diero, whether or not you accept climate change, what what are you doing to manage your carbon footprint? I often uh, am a, a take and am a big fan of public transportation. I've taken the Caltrain uh, to the Bay Area many times. 
um, and also uh, use use BART uh, uh, when I'm here. I, I, I will admit that I am adding. I'm not sure if it's a net gain or 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 a net loss. I am adding uh, because my 16-year-old daughter will be driving in three short months, and which is a very scary proposition. <laughs> well, if you You'll buy her an EV, if you buy her an EV, she can't go very far. <laughs> I think she, she will be driving Daddy or Mommy's car. Okay, <laughs> Senator Pavley, what do you do to manage your carbon footprint? Well, our family's tried to work hard on this. Um, I don't know if you know where Agora Hills is, is inland and like San Fernando Valley area. We don't have air conditioning, never have, and this summer was a real test of that, (laughs) whether I could survive. Um, But we use our clothesline. Uh, It's a novel concept and idea. The sun actually dries your clothes, and we've replaced our appliances, whether it's uh, our washing machine or refrigerator. It's amazing what California's done to have more energy-efficient appliances and um, if, um, if hopefully in the future I just drive a regular hybrid car, um, I'd love to have a plug-in hybrid so that will um, not only reduce my carbon footprint, but I won't have the maybe the range anxiety with just an electric car. So those are my plans for the future. What are you waiting for? There's some good cars out there. I just don't have the money. <laughs> Uh, I'll not, not let myself off the hook. Uh, electric cars, solar panels, uh, LEDs recently replaced the, the water heater and put a timer on it so it circulates the water when the kids are taking a shower. We have to end it there. Our thanks to our guest today at Climate One, Senator Fran Pavley from the California State Senate and Nothoff from the California Advocacy Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council and Paul Diero, an energy lobbyist for the Western States Petroleum Association. I'm Greg Dalton. A free podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available on the iTunes store. I'd like to thank our guests, our audience here at the Commonwealth Club, and on the radio for coming today. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.